welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, your co-host for today, and I'm here with the author of a new novel um, that I loved so much, and the pitch just grabbed me from the start, so let's just get right into this. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Sure. My name is Lev Rosen. I sometimes write under Elsie Rosen. I write books for all ages, and today we're talking about Lavender House, which is a queer historical mystery um, that... I like to pitch as Knives Out meets Carol. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is the pitch that I heard um, when I got the um, advanced copy of this book. And that was what sold me immediately. I'm like, this just sounds exactly like my jam. And it was, it turns out. Like, it was, it was great. <laughs> Actually, um, the best pitch I heard, I think, was uh, Hank Philippu Ryan. She was just... She, she gave me a lovely blurb, but she also was just sort of talking at an event. And she said, it was like Agatha Christie meets Raymond Chandler meets La Caja Fall. And I was like, that nailed it. That's so good. Ah, that is so good. There's something really validating about like just somebody coming up with a pitch that captures exactly like what you were trying to go for with the book. And it's just like every way that I've heard this book described just makes it sound like absolutely fascinating. And it is like, it's really fun. Um, <laughs> before we get into it, I was wondering if I could just ask you um, like about your writing career in general and how it kind of led you to this book. Sure. Um, my career, you know, I've been doing this a decade, <laughs> uh, which is wild to say. Um, but my first book came out, um, Oh, gosh, will it be 11 years this fall, this October? Maybe uh, September. Uh, I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while. Um, and, you know, my first one was historical it was steampunk, science fiction, romantic comedy. And then uh, I had some science fiction noir and then some middle grade, one of which was literary and one of which was more of a folktale. Mm. And then I moved into young adult uh where I finally felt sort of welcome to be more explicitly queer in what I was doing. Um, and, you know, I wrote uh, a sex ed thriller, Jack of Hearts and Other Parts, which is the book that's getting banned all over the country. And then uh, Camp, which was a rom-com. Mm -hmm. And uh, after those two, I'd always... I've always loved noir. I was raised on old movies and I've read so many of the books. Um, I think I've read everything by Chandler. And um, I I had that one noir book that I wrote a while ago, uh, Depth, which is an adult novel um, with a female protagonist, a female detective. Um, and what once I had sort of been writing YA and I felt sort of, liberated enough to write more explicitly queer text, I decided to go for it. And I was like, I want to figure out how to do a queer noir, a queer historical noir. And that was something that was always in my mind. And I couldn't quite figure out what that would be until I was watching an adaptation of a Christie novel. Um, 
which one was it? It was one of the ones on Amazon and I don't remember which one it is, um, but it, it was, a li- it was over the top. It was like camp. They were, the house they were in was like 90% staircases <laughs> and everyone was just always on a landing looking down on someone else. <laughs> um, and I loved it. But one thing I was thinking of when I was watching is like, it really is a shame that, uh, you know, of the suspects, there's like always, you know, some kind of over the top ones and then some who are more staid. What if they could all be over the top? And then once I had that thought, for some reason, I was like, what if they could all be queer? And, and um, once I had that thought, it sort of uh, allowed me to to like combine that idea with the the queer noir that I'd always wanted to do. And it became this sort of, you know, Chandler meets Christie meets Lakaja Fall thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, there, right now we are are living in a time when all of a sudden queer history is becoming like a huge thing. There are books coming out all the time and they were so helpful and so wonderful. Um, people like Hugh Ryan, Eric Servini are writing stuff that lets me do a lot of the research. Although I will say, for Lavender House, since it's based in uh, uh, San Francisco area, uh, Boyd, what is her first name? Nan, uh, where is it? I don't see it, but uh, her last name is Boyd and she wrote Wide Open Town um, uh, and it must be on another one of my shelves and not the one immediately behind me. Uh, And uh, yeah, there's just so much useful history out there now that's being written about that just let me that that made me able to do this Mm. yeah I really loved the um the historical context for this story um I just thought it was so interesting and a really like underexplored part of history because I feel like a lot of people obviously know about the Red Scare and McCarthyism and a lot mm-hmm. of like the stuff that was going on around that. But I feel like less people probably know about the Lavender Scare and the oppression of queer people that was happening at the same time. And this story like really gives you a really interesting lens onto what queer people's lives in that period would have been like. Yeah, there was a period in time when McCarthy was so intent on like saying that everyone in government and specifically the State Department was queer, that people from the State Department, when they met people and said what they did for a living, the men would be like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I work at the State Department. They would immediately follow it up with, I'm married with three children or whatever, like, because they had to immediately prove that they were straight because the media and McCarthy were spinning this idea that everyone in the State Department was gay. (laughs) Yeah. That's just, it's... You know, it's it's funny because for a long time, I would have said like it's so hard to put yourself back in that mindset into that time period. But you know, <laughs> we are in a period where books are getting banned and where there's a lot of conversation around like what topics are okay for what audiences. You know, and so it's a little bit closer now than perhaps you know we would we would prefer. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I I mean, obviously I started writing this when things were rough, but the banning had not started yet. Um, And uh, it's interesting to sort of 
be revisiting sort of thinking about publicity right now as my books are being banned mm-hmm. and thinking about this and thinking about those parallels. Um, but it also made me feel like the book was more important and also, you know, the sequel, which I'm uh, editing right now. Um, it, it, there's this sort of underlying, you know, it's a noir, but I like to say it's a, a softer noir. Mm-hmm. And I think what I, I try to get at is that um, in these times of great sort of persecution in these times where there is darkness encroaching and I think that being queer in the 50s and to a lesser degree now is a very noir experience where it feels like everyone is out to get you Um, it feels like you are trapped but the thing you can do is you can find sort of even if you are trapped, you can find love and community within the cage you're in. Mm. Um, and that is sort of the message that I, I was trying to convey and the, the vibe, I guess, I'm going for in these books. So it is noir, but there is this softer idea of hope, which I hope resonates with a lot of queer people today who are feeling, oh man, we are going backwards and things are getting rougher. Yeah, for sure. And I like a lot of that messaging in the book, I think, was so effective. And, you know, to sort of like touch back on noir, one of the things that occurred to me while I was reading is that, you know, like when you watch old noirs, there's a lot of like queer coding, right? Like Peter Lorre in the Maltese Falcon is like this sort of like queer coded character. But that wasn't always like a super flattering, you know, kind of coding. And it was Uh, like about like fear-mongering and, you know, othering people and, like, so not always great. So I thought it was really refreshing to see a a noir that had, like, positive queer characters in it, and they were openly queer to a certain extent. You know, there's a lot of, like, interesting things going on there with people, people's identities and how they perform their gender and for whom and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. um, if we could talk a little bit about Andy, because I thought he was such a great main character. Um, And one of the things I thought that was most interesting about him was that, um, you know, he is a a former cop who lost his job because he was caught up in this lavender scare. And he's also a war veteran. And something that I was super interested to, to learn from this book is that you know, we always see war as this like very um, hyper masculine enterprise where like men go to be men. But I learned from reading this that actually like a lot of queer men in the army experienced more freedom in that life than they did like in their everyday lives at home. So is that something that you can talk a little bit about and how you kind of yeah, are I, backstory? I got to research that a lot more for the sequel too, because we get more into that backstory. And for that one, uh, Coming Out Under Fire is the name of the book that I used for research. Um, and it is all about sort of queer people in the military in World War II. And Oh man, it is vast. It is vast because on on one level, there was a bunch of people going to urban areas, a bunch of men going to urban areas because they had joined the war effort. Um, And because of that, a bunch of queer men who would have been like the only queer men in their town suddenly were in these like large groups where there were a bunch of other gay men. Mm -hmm. And so depending on the people in charge... This led to either incredible freedom or incredible persecution. Um, And for the first half of the war, 
before the military sort of was on to the idea that like queer people were in the military at all, uh, it was extremely free. Um, so there were, you know, there's there's one story in the uh, coming out under fire about two guys uh, on a ship together in the Navy who uh, at one point they were just like going at it on the deck um, and the captain comes on and he's like, guys, can you just move? We need to look at this uh, the horizon where the enemy could be coming from. You're in the way. Um, so on one level, you know, there was that freedom. But then on the other level, especially when we start talking about how when the military caught on 44, I think, 45, mm -hmm. um, yeah, all of a sudden it became much more like uh who are you name names um uh, you know we need to you know, there there were women who were too butch uh or even women who were out were like followed to clubs um uh, and uh you know they were they were brought before tribunals told to name names um they weren't usually put in the brig because psychology was developing at this point but they were institutionalized and sometimes those those military wards became great havens for queer people too. They would put on drag shows. Um, there was a gay newsletter called the Myrtle Beach Bitch. Nice. Uh, <laughs> written by a gay man about like being queer in the military. Very gossipy, very queer language that was sent out um, that operated for years before they were caught. And, uh, and um, I don't remember if they were just, uh, uh, what's the word, not fired. <laughs> Sorry, my brain is blanking on the exact term. Uh, but uh, blue ticketed, there we go. Yeah. Uh, which is when they were let go, but they were let go in such a way that uh, they couldn't get any of the benefits of having been in the military, which was the big fear. You know, you wanted to get out of the military with all the benefits, especially the free education. Um, but if you were... Uh, expelled for being queer, you got a blue ticket, which meant that you uh, didn't get any benefits. And when you applied for jobs, they would see that on your record and they'd be like, oh, not him. Mm. And it was it was uh, more general, but it was it became known for queer people. And they used it to get a lot against um, African-Americans as well. Mm. Um, so uh, and I think generally people of color, I'm not obviously I didn't get into that particular research as much. But um, uh, so that was the big fear. You didn't want to get blue ticketed. And for the most part, you could, it really varied. You could get away with it sometimes. Sometimes you couldn't. And um, Andy in the book and also Cliff, you know, they are sharing their own recollections and um, they both managed to get away with it for a while. Um, in the sequel, you'll see Andy got a little more scared later on, but certainly Cliff, who was part of the entertainment unit of the military, um, which was extremely gay. And, you know, when he talks about having men lined up out, uh, up outside his, uh, dressing room door, those are, that's real stories. Like that happened. The men would bring these, especially the, uh, the performers who did female impersonation, uh because we they they didn't call it drag then um <laughs> uh the term has been around but the military did not call it drag uh they were female impersonators they especially had a lot of admirers <laughs> in the military 
Wow. That is all so fascinating. And, you know, like it's, it's, to me, it's really interesting that this interesting situation of queer people in the military where they have um, more freedoms than perhaps they did in their everyday lives for a time, but also had to walk a very delicate line um, in exploring that identity, obviously, as you're saying. And that's kind of what's going on in the Lavender House, too. Like the people who live in Lavender House, um, when they're inside the walls of the house, get to experience a lot more freedom to be who they are and to show affection to those that they love. But at the same time, when they go outside the walls of their home, they are subject to the, you know, the constraints of everyday society. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about how you kind of came up with Lavender House and its inhabitants? Because it's so interesting and there's a lot of like noiry elements, but also some gothic elements, too, that I really dug. So can you talk a little bit about like where this all came from? Yeah. uh, So I think that it gets back to that idea of noir being a cage. And, uh, you know, this is a a cage that looks that you're free within, uh, but also just sort of highlights how trapped you are the moment you leave. And it's the best thing he can hope for on some level that any of them can hope for. Uh, but it's such a fascinating thing to me. And Lavender Marriages, which is where the, you know, the idea, the sort of inside joke, Lavender House, Lavender Marriages were a real thing. It was mostly the government, but there are some famous like Hollywood ones where a gay man and a lesbian would marry each other for mm. appearances sake. Mm. And uh, that is also what unites this household um, in the, 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 the heir to the soap empire, Henry, has married a lesbian, Margot, and they each have, you know, he is a boyfriend, she is a girlfriend. And then Henry's mother had also had a girlfriend uh, who is his other mother. Um, And so it's a big queer family in that regard. Um, And I knew that if I was going to have that, they had to have a place where they were safe. Mm. Uh, They had to have a place where it felt really safe. And I wanted to make that a sprawling estate, I guess. Mm. Um, uh, And I also knew I had to give them a reason for uh, needing to, you know, hide away from the rest of the world, which is why I made, you know, Soap Empire. Uh, And that, that was sort of playing with the idea. I was like, Lavender Marriage, Lavender House, because Agatha Christie vibes and, you know, so house, why would it be a lavender house? They're growing lavender. Oh, soap empire, because soap, cleanliness, um, you know, the opposite of queerness in that mindset, you know, that you could not be queer and sell soap in the 50s. So uh, that was where all of that, that, that dynamic came from. Building the actual house, I just really wanted to make it feel like a snow globe almost Mm. um like that was the way i was thinking of the cage there are there's a lot about you know the walls and the the trees looming up like bars and um that's all very intentional to give it that sort of claustrophobic feel but i also wanted to make sure that the house itself was spacious there are grounds there's a greenhouse there's like uh, flowers everywhere (laughs) um and that was sort of the the vibe so it feels like paradise but what is a paradise if you can if you're trapped in it what does that become Mm 
And it's that gilded cage thing. And it gets back to the feeling of what it is to, to be forced to live a particular way um, and be happy in one spot and scared to death for an- in another. And knowing that if you ever let the wrong person into your bubble, like you're all doomed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that and of course now there's a murderer somewhere in there um so that that's really was the vibe um but yeah that it's it's a very noir thing to me i know i like i see the gothic elements and certainly there's so much christy influence on it who is not so much a noir writer as she is a you know just a a, a mystery writer i shouldn't say just the queen of mystery writers um <laughs> But uh, to me, it's just an extraordinarily noir take on domesticity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, you know, like, I think this is perhaps something that, like, if you were to, you know, make a Venn diagram of gothic and noir, like, the overlap would be this sort of, like, you know, seductive, perfect-seeming exterior that sort of, like, um, is covering up, like, some corruption or, you know, something that people would rather brush over. And, you know, Andy is coming into this world at once kind of like an outsider because he's not really a member of the family, yet they are extraordinarily accepting of who he is and they offer him lots of support and they offer to make him a part of the family, you know, and so there's a lot of like really interesting stuff going on there. Um, One question I had about Andy, um, I noticed while I was reading that he's really amazing at um, picking up and reading people's body language and you spend a lot of time like you know, explaining how people move, you know, how they cross their arms over their chest and how they hold their cigarette. And, you know, and I wondered, like, part of that must come obviously from being a cop and being trained by a a cop like his father. But also, like, does some of it come from, like, his nightlife, you know, and going to these gay clubs and sort of having to communicate with people via body language rather than words? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, early on when he's first sort of drinking himself to death and Pearl shows up and they talk and she wants to hire him. She asks, what made you a good detective inspector in the SFPD? (laughs) Technically the term is what made you a good inspector? What made you a good detective? And um, he says, you know, when you have spent your life hiding a thing, you learn to see when other people are hiding something too. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of like, you know, I didn't, I'm not sure I, I, fully believe in the whole like every detective needs a superpower thing but I believe every detective needs a perspective Mm. and on like what makes them good at their job and that was his perspective he is someone who has spent his life hiding something and so is good at spotting other people hiding things Mm. and so that to me uh, is what you, what you're seeing when he is noticing body language. And yeah, it does. I mean, I don't think it's explicit in the text, but it does. I don't think I even thought of it. But yes, brilliant idea. I should have put it in there. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, reading who he could trust at, at the bars would have been another uh use of his skill let's say he would have known whom to uh you know 
go home. Well, he would never go home with anyone who to go into the bathroom with for mm-hmm. a quickie uh, that he knows wouldn't ask too many questions, wouldn't press him. Um, and yeah, I think that that is all part of, and this is something that queer people still say today, you know, when you're in the closet, you have a certain level of paranoia that makes you pick up on other people mm-hmm. and what they're they're detecting, what they're looking for, what they're doing. Uh, and so I think that that is something that Andy, that makes Andy so good at his job is the fact that he's queer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that what, to me was even more interesting about him was the the fact that even though he was this closeted cop he and this is something we get he deals with over the course of the the novel is he has a lot of culpability for not having informed the community about these raids um and you know people press him on that like you were a gay cop uh that's not okay on some, like, you know, these people were oppressing us, these people beat us to death, and now you are more explicitly us, like, why weren't you helping us? And I think that's the sort of guilt and culpability from his job that he has to deal with over the course of the novel. Mm. Yeah, that was something that I really admired about the book, actually, is that it has tremendous um, empathy for Andy, but also doesn't really let him off the hook when it comes to, you know, participating in the oppression of his peers as a a police officer. Um, And, you know, I really like this point that you make about how since he is hiding something, he is able to sort of suss out when other people are hiding things too. And so when he comes into this family in order to solve the murder, um, he has to do a lot of figuring out like who is lying to him and who isn't. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a lot of interesting things going on with the way that a lot of like the family members are sort of like hiding in plain sight, you know, because like they like to share lots of stuff about like parts of their lives while not sharing other stuff in order to cover up like various, you know, secrets and things that they're holding from each other. Um yeah, I just I really love like all the character dynamics. It's really like complex and very, um, very real, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I really I, I I I think of myself as sort of a character writer in that I love, you know, really focusing on people and the way they present themselves. Uh, and so I think especially with a family that is so used to performing uh let's say you know not just straightness to the outside world but a specific a specific brand of straightness in order to sell soap um you know there there's a moment where he's seeing all these sort of old news clippings about them uh, you know here's an interview with someone's secretary secret actually her girlfriend um and you know here's a moment of them at a party posing with the soap here she is you know talking to soap people and they're all very good at this which also makes them very good at presenting themselves to this detective in their midst in a way that they want to uh and so you know all all queer people who have been in the closet learn a certain aspect of performance 
And so being around these performers is sort of a a new experience for Andy because they're like him. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a character that really stood out for me that I think illustrates all this really well and also kind of like the limits of it is Pat. So Pat might be like my favorite character in the book. He's really great. And, you know, I think he is like, you know, he's part of like how this book demonstrates like the importance of like found family as opposed to blood family, you know, and how queer people make communities. Um, but also he kind of illustrates like the limits of that because like class also plays a factor in how he's treated, you know, and he talks to Andy as another, you know, almost like staff member, let's say, in a very different way than he relates to the family that he's serving. Um, so was that something like, were you also thinking about class while you were, were writing the the uh pat yes uh absolutely with pat and dot and judy who mm -hmm. are the cook and gardener um i knew i wanted queer obviously the the staff would have to be queer in order for you know everyone's keeping the same secret um pat is the butler and he sort of runs the household to an extent with alice's supervision um and he was someone who I knew was going to be fun. <laughs> like that was that was sort of the mo the thing I wanted to think to myself. Like this is the guy who scouted Andy for everyone. This is the guy who like knew Andy from the clubs, even if they didn't know each other, and like saw him get dragged out of the black cat in the raid, and was like, "Oh, gay cop without a job now, probably." if he lives. Um, <laughs> so he's the one who would have been the closest to Andy in terms of sort of their personal lives. The difference is that Andy always felt this sort of deep need to compartmentalize. You know, he would go to the bars to essentially get laid, but he wouldn't socialize. He was very afraid of people finding out he was a cop and blackmailing him. He was very afraid of cops finding out he was gay and, you know, beating him. So he kept everything very compartmentalized and he went to the bars mostly for physical pleasure and not so much for company. But he still would have been in Pat's orbit because Pat would have gone to the bars to socialize. Pat was out there having fun, meeting men, uh, getting drinks, singing, dancing, whatever. Uh, and so they would have been in each other's orbits, but Pat would have been this example of someone who almost had no fear. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though he obviously has to look out for the family, there's this, there's, there's less concern. If he gets caught, then the family can be like, we had no idea. And like, they're safe. Um, but he would have been the one, he would have been almost what Andy could be. And he's a little older. And when, you know, he and Andy are hanging out, he's like, you're not the family I'm serving. You're like me. Like, I've seen you from the clubs. I know your type. Um, and I'm going to talk to you. There's an expression, a uh, vintage queer expression, um, letting your hair down. And like, now we think of it as just sort of relaxing, you know, letting your hair down. In the 50s and queer communities, it meant being open about your sexuality. Yeah, you could, you know, if you're around queer people, you could let your hair down, which meant 
Um, and that is sort of how I thought of it, keep it more um, uh, uh, bottled up and professional. In that sense, I was thinking about the class differences. Certainly the family has a lot of privileges in that they have this house at all mm-hmm. and they can maintain everything they need to. But they also have, you know, the they can lose all of that as well. And so it's a little... It's not more dangerous because Pat could, you know, get killed by cops. Um, they all could. Um, but it is a different kind of danger. And I think because of that, Pat has a looseness about him, mm-hmm. um, especially since he's already, you know, been through a beating and survived. Uh, he is someone who has come to terms with his lot in life and is determined to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's really invested in helping Andy enjoy his life a little bit more too. Like he encourages him to make friends at the clubs and, and to integrate himself into the queer community in a way that he has been really reluctant to. Um, yeah. And Elsie does that too. Um, Elsie, who is sort of, Elsie is uh, the wife's girlfriend, Margot's girlfriend. And uh, she owns a club in the city and she comes and goes between the house and her- but she is very open in her public life as well. So she gets the benefits of the family, but isn't so worried about the cage. Uh, And she's interesting in that sense too. And she and Andy at one point, she reads him like a book and she's essentially like, I know your type. You were trying to keep everything compartmentalized, which meant you had no life at all. And like, maybe now that you can't be compartmentalized, you should try having a life. Um, and, you know, she's the one who sort of, she does that in a condescending, but I think by the end, very friendly manner, um, which is good since she carries on, uh, they stay friends into the sequel. Um, I think that Pat, on the other hand, comes at it with a more, you know, say lusty (laughs) vibe is a lot more like, reveling in something pat enjoys being queer in i think a way that not everyone in the house does mm-hmm. um he s- doesn't struggle with it he does intellectualize it he reads all the books there were a lot of books coming out uh, about queerness um in the 50s he mentions one in particular uh oh gosh what's the title the something the life of the homosexual i can't oh, remember right. an autobiography um, written by a closeted man about his closeted life and similar to Andy going to the clubs, having sex with men, then going back to his wife. Um, and it was it was a big deal at the time within the queer community. And so Pat is very into that sort of culture, the, the queer culture that existed at the time. And I think because of that, he has this perspective with Andy where he's trying to get him, trying to teach him almost. Sorry, that was a very long answer to that question. (laughs) That's great. I loved it. Yeah. And it's, it is really interesting, I think, how he does play this sort of like, um, you know, because they are peers, but also like Pat is a little bit older. And so there's a little bit of like a sort of intergenerational type, like, aspect to you know where he is helping definitely mentorship you like that's what it is it is a sort of it's a sort of queer mentorship and i think that it's also a sort of queer 
you know, I've been where you are. I've hated myself. I've been like trapped in this terrible life. You know, I am so much happier now. You should be happier if you like now that you have no choice, you can be happier too. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it. Um, So yeah, you've said that you, there is a sequel in the works. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very excited to hear that. (laughs) And I'm hoping that perhaps you'll come back to the show and talk about the second book with us because I've, I I loved this one and it was really great to talk to you. And I, I can't wait to see what's, you know, what's next for Andy. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, The second book will be out uh, next fall. And I was just told I'm allowed to talk about the title, which is The Bell in the Fog. Um, And it deals more with Andy's past in the military and with his new life as a queer detective, (laughs) investigating cases for the queer community and working above a queer nightclub. (laughs) What a life. It just sounds great. <laughs> I mean, like, it's it's like... <laughs> fun. It was a lot of fun. I'm really glad I got to bring Elsie and Jean into the sequel. Um, and, and, you know, I think I think it is a fun setup. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my editor just recently and she was saying it almost feels like the sequel is like the first official book in a series and the first one is sort of a an origin story if that makes sense because now he has this career laid out and like it's a little more uh obvious what happens you know he gets a case he investigates a case Uh, um so i think that it's you know I, hopefully there there are more books. Hopefully there'll be more books beyond the second. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to keep going. I have so there's so much queer history in the 50s that is unexplored. Not just the military navy stuff that you know we talked about that is in the sequel. Not just you know the the huge queer nightlife that was in San Francisco in the 50s. We're talking so many clubs. Um, and you know, there's so much stuff that I, I really want to dig into and I'm really excited that maybe I can do that in this forum of noir that I love so much. Oh, yes, me too. I am so excited to see what's next. And I just want to thank you for coming to talk to us. This has been really great. And I'm very excited for everybody else to get to read Lavender House because right now I, I'm trying to talk about it with my friends in the vaguest terms possible so that I don't ruin any surprises for them. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Maybe we should put a spoiler alert at the beginning of this. We didn't say who did it. We didn't say who did it. It's fine. Yeah, I was I was very careful. I just... <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners. So as of the publication of this episode, Lavender House will be available at your nearest library or independent bookstore. And I highly suggest you check it out. Um, for now, it's time to close this chapter. This has been Jen in conversation with Lev Rosen, and we'll see you next time. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.